0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, your host here on Felony Friday. And I want to try something new. Um, don't have an ad for you here or anything like that. But I have a request. So I want to try something with Apple Podcast Reviews. Um, they're very important in podcasts. And they help you get more attention and eyeballs on your podcast. You get in the, uh, you know, you rank up in the categories, all that stuff. So I would like people to give five-star reviews. So I'm going to reward people who give us five star reviews, review the podcast, say something nice, and then if after you do that, if you drop either a topic you'd like me to talk about, a question, and ask me anything, you know, you can ask me a random question and I will address it on the show if it's if it's appropriate. But you can drop that after your five star rating and your review, put what you want to talk about there on the show I will talk about it and um, and it helps the show. It helps you influence the show. It's a, uh, it's a win-win. So please consider doing that. Make sure, even if you listen on you know, Spotify or Overcast or whatever, do it on Apple Podcast. They have the most control right now. So do it there and uh, we'll see what happens. All right. Thank you very much.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of
0: the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? Felony Friday is a show where every single week we're going to do a deep dive and we're going to examine and expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, if this is your first time listening to Felony Friday, your first time listening to any of the shows we have here on Lines of Liberty, sit back, relax, enjoy the show, put your feet up. If you're driving, please don't put your feet up. But if you've been back several times, if this is a regular habit of listening, why haven't you subscribed? Or maybe you have subscribed. Thank you if you subscribe, but if you haven't, please do so. Whatever podcasting app you're listening on, please just scroll up to the top there, punch that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get every single episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast and of Felony Friday delivered to your little listening device. And also, if you really enjoy what you're hearing here, please think about uh, giving us a a five-star rating and a review. On uh, Apple Podcast, especially if you listen there, because it helps with the algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Without further ado, let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Chad Marks. Uh, Chad is a guy that I'm familiar with because I've, I've seen his name floating on Facebook around for a while, even with him still being in prison. He was doing work. Uh, helping others to get out of prison. Um, his, his name is one that in the criminal justice community is, uh, is well known. And Chad is now out, and uh, he's, he got out uh, with compassionate release uh, on June 25th uh, through the First Step Act. So a little bit on Chad's story's background. Of course, we'll go into much more detail uh, on this. But in February of 2003, Chad was convicted of conspiracy to distribute 50 grams or more of cocaine base. Uh, the case was taken to trial and we'll talk about how that happened there. Cause I think that that's a, that's a story in itself. And he was sentenced to serve more than 40 years in prison when his co-defendants uh, who committed the same crimes and pled guilty were sentenced to seven years, 12 years and 15 years. So, and to give you an, idea about Chad and everything he's done while in prison. I mean, we'll talk about everything that he's accomplished while in prison. Back in October of 2018, the judge who sentenced him actually wrote a letter to President Trump in favor of clemency uh, for Chad Marks. So Chad, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for coming on the show. And it's great to, great to get to talk, to talk with you today and uh, for my audience to, to learn your story. Uh, to learn about really everything you've accomplished uh, for criminal justice reform, for helping people get out of prison while you were incarcerated uh, yourself. But before we get into that, before we get into, you know, how you ended up in prison, to give my audience like a good idea of who you are and your background and where you came from, if you could kind of share what was your life like before prison? Uh, what part of the, I start off with general stuff. Where'd you grow up? What part of the country? What was your family life like growing up? And, you know, how did you really, in that lead up to prison? Um, what, what was your life like?
1: Well, um, my life was a little different than a lot of people's, but similar to a bunch of people's too. I grew up in um, Rochester, New York, in the inner city, um, single mother and a younger sister. So my mom kind of struggled financially to take care of us. So my life wasn't 100% great, but um, I kind, of, kind of grew up kind of tough, tough neighborhood. We grew up kind of poor, and um, my life kind of took a different turn when I got a little older. I was about 15. I was tired of us living kind of a life in poverty, and I started selling drugs, and eventually that led to a 40-year term of imprisonment.
0: So how how old were you the first time you sold drugs? I was about 15 the first time what type of drugs were you selling that the first time cocaine so you start selling drugs um you started making money i I assume and it escalated from there so it escalates from there uh did you have any previous run-ins with the law uh to your conviction to to your drug conviction no so oh Prior, prior
1: to the conviction, I yeah, did pri- prior. Yeah. But, yeah I'm, I apologize. But yeah, when I was 16 years old, I had an assault, second degree conviction.
0: Okay. So 16 years old, you had an assault. And then at, at what age were you arrested uh, for the conspiracy?
1: I was 24.
0: 24 years old. So h- how did, how did that go down? How, how did the arrest happen? Did you have an idea that, you know, you, that you were in trouble or it, how, what was the environment at the time?
1: No, I didn't, I didn't have any idea that I was in trouble or that I was being investigated, anything like that. But um, I was arrested at gunpoint. I was in my truck and I was pulled over on February 4th, 2003. I was actually surrounded by about five or six cop cars. I was pulled over, taken out at gunpoint, placed on the ground. I was actually um, strip searched on that night in the middle of the street while it was snowing out because they didn't find any drugs in the vehicle or any drugs on my person. So they actually handcuffed me, picked me up off the ground and Drop my pants in the middle of the street to make sure I didn't have any drugs or any weapons on me.
0: That's, that's ridiculous.
1: That was back in February two thousand three. They kind of did things. Well, they've been doing these things for a long well, time. It's still,
0: for, <laughs> unfortunately, it's yeah, it's nothing, nothing yeah. funny about it. But yeah, they've they've been they continue to do it. So that's that's something that's got to change. But that's for another podcast. Uh, okay. You know, to get more into your story in the lead up to your to your trial, um, there was. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in sort of researching your story here, there was some sort of miscommunication or something between you and your lawyer on what, how you wanted to plea or, or what you wanted to do um, with, with your guilty plea? Well, this is what happened. There was, a, um, there was a plea agreement in the case
1: that could have resulted in as low as 10 years, but the offer was, on the guidelines was 11 to 14. And my lawyer, I had relayed to him that I was just concerned there was a two-point enhancement for a weapon. At the time, I was only charged with one count, and my mandatory minimum was 10 years, and the maximum was life. So I asked him to have the two points removed because I knew without the gun enhancement, what would happen is I'd be eligible for the drug program, and I'd be able to get a year off my sentence. So he told me that he would look into it. And, you know, long story short, he really didn't look into it. And the government ended up coming back with a 16 count indictment. And now my mandatory minimum went from 10 years to 40. But had my lawyer accepted the plea, which I instructed him to do, I would have been sentenced to 11 to 14 years. And with my judge, I would have probably got about 12 and a half years. But once the indictment was uh, superseded, my mandatory minimum changed from 10 to 40. So there was no way to go and get anything less.
0: So you knew that going into the trial then, that if you were convicted, it would be 40 years.
1: Well, on the morning of my trial, I actually, well, under them charges. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in the government's discretion. The government could have removed one of the charges. They could have plea bargain. They could have done a lot of things. So on the morning of my trial, I um actually was willing to take 20 years, and they came back with a 27 year offer, and that wasn't uh, that wasn't something I was willing to take. Yeah. So I knew that I was facing a mandatory minimum of 40 years, but I honestly thought if I were convicted, I'd probably get a life sentence. That's what I thought.
0: Oh, so you thought that going in? Wow. Yeah. So okay, so take us forward. Um, you end up getting convicted. And your sentenced to forty years, yeah. W- w- where were you at mentally at that point in time? What was your What was your attitude um, going in? Well, mentally, I mean, it destroys you mentally. You start
1: thinking, "Wow, how could I ever possibly do a forty year sentence or a life sentence?" So it was pretty rough, man. There were times when I had lost about twenty five pounds, and literally in a, probably about three weeks, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. It was it was it was rough. It was a hard go to be in that position. And um, I was hopeful because I knew that I had a judge that was a judge. And obviously, I respect him a lot. I knew that he was, uh, he had some compassion. So even though I thought that it was possible, actually a life plus 30 year sentence, I still thought that I would probably get the 40 years and I was hopeful that I would win an appeal because I knew there were things that went wrong. Even back then, I knew that I had ineffective assistance of counsel on the plea offer. So I always believed that, hey, I'm going to get out on this plea offer issue. And I ended up, you know, going through all that stuff and still lost on that. So if it was, without the without the uh, changes to the First Step Act, I wouldn't be out here talking to you today.
0: And, and so what were those changes? Can you break that down? Like what, what part of the First Step Act was helped you to get yeah. out? Well, this, this is what
1: happened. In the First Step Act, what they did was they amended the Compassionate Release Statute. And when they amended that, it took the power away from the BOP director. Because at one point, it was only the BOP director that could actually petition the court on your behalf. And if the BOP director said no, I'm not doing it, you're not getting getting into court. And they did that in about 95% of the cases. So now what happened was the first step back congress said, "Hey, look, we're going to put the we're going to put this power back in the judge's hands, which they should do. Mm-hmm. It, it shouldn't be left up to a BOP director. I don't see him, you know, he's not personally involved in the case. I don't see him as having more power than a federal judge. And the government's actually making arguments against it now and saying, oh, yeah, the judge doesn't have the power. The only person that has that power is the BOP director. So that's another argument that they're making. But the uh, the most important thing with this First Step Act was uh, stack 924Cs. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but what Congress did is they came in, in the First Step Act. They said, hey, look, what the courts have been doing for all these years is this. They've been misapplying the law. So what we're going to do is we're going to clarify our intent, what our intent was back then. And that is that people wouldn't be sentenced under stack 924 C's. A first 924 C comes with five, seven or 10 years and each additional 924 C is 25 more years. So that's, you would get five, 25, 25, 25, 25 guys. There's guys in there got five, 600 years off of this law. So what they did was they changed it, but they didn't make it retroactive. But however, when they changed the compassionate release statute, they put the power back in the judge's hands and people are making that argument that, Hey, the change in law, Congress said that this was wrong and that you've been misapplying the law all these years. So what we're going to do is we're going to give the power to the judge and he can find extraordinary and compelling reasons. And that's what my judge did. He found that the, the changes in the law, as well as my rehabilitation were extraordinary and compelling reasons that gave him the power to reduce the sentence. It, and
0: what happened with, so you were, Tell us the story here, because I think at the beginning of June, you were initially granted a compassionate release, and then it was blocked somehow? Well, well, what happened was um, I was supposed to be released on June 4th based
1: off of my judge's order. And um, what the government did was the, the assistant U.S. attorney, he waited until the last minute to file for what's called a stay. So he filed that to my sentencing judge, and my sentencing judge denied it. The next day, he went to the appeals court. And they granted a, a temporary stay so the three judge panel could hear that. But this is this is it was, that was devastating. Remember, you asked me earlier about the trial and how mm-hmm. I felt. I've never in my life felt worse because I was actually walking out of the prison. What? I was actually outside the door and walking to the gate for them to hit the door the, the metal gates what? to let me out. And there was a call on the um, on the officer's uh, speaker, and it said, "Stop, Chad Marks. Hey, stop him. Stop him right now." And I just kind of knew. It was like getting punched in the Boy, stomach.
0: That's like and, something out of a movie. That's that is ridiculous.
1: Well, I think that he did it purposely. You know, he waited 30. Even, and my judge said it in his decision that the prosecutor waited till the 11th hour to do something like this. So it was just another just another part of uh, what I, I call injustice, man. It's an injustice.
0: But, so was this the same prosecutor that originally prosecuted you or? Yeah. yeah the same re- prosecutor. Wow, 17 and a half years. To hold, I mean, to have that seventeen years later, and I mean, you got a what kind of mental state is, is that guy in it to pull something like that? That is crazy.
1: It's outrageous. See, this is the thing, right? And not, all, I'm not saying all prosecutors are like this, but this is supposed to be a Department of Justice, mm-hmm. not a Department of Prosecutions. Cases should never become personal I'm on our side or their side. But sometimes it is personal. Sometimes they just want to put the wrench in and just twist it. And they did that to me and it, it was devastating. What, that why,
0: why do you think it became personal for you from your prosecutor towards you, I should say?
1: I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know that there's a lot of other people that worked in that building with him and they've said that, you know, I've made some relationships with attorneys and they say, Hey, this guy's always been very harsh. And I mean, he's not the most liked fellow, but. I don't know. I don't understand it. I've wrote letters and apologized to the uh, – I've, I've personally apologized to him in letters and said anything that I've done in the past that angered you, I want to uh, apologize for that. You know, when I was a young man, I made some irrational, irresponsible choices, and I deeply regret them. But he's still, he's still the same guy. Nothing to change him.
0: Yeah. So, like, to turn all the way back to, um, you know, when you were initially arrested during that process, were, were you – I, do you think there could have been some interactions between you back then where, I mean, were you more hard-headed back then where you would have said something or?
1: Oh, interactions between me and him?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, There were some. There were some. I mean, I'll be the first person to tell you that uh, that I wasn't the most um, respectful young man back then. But um, I didn't go out of my way to be disrespectful. Mm-hmm there was something that happened during my trial where one of the jurors had dropped their papers and my mother helped her pick up the papers. And he told the judge that my mom was talking to the jury. And that, that isn't what happened. My mother was, my mother's a nice person. Mm -hmm. She just helped her and picked up her papers. And he uh, told the judge that and kind of threatened to arrest my mom. I thought that was outrageous. My mother's never been arrested a day in her life. And and from that point on, things just got really, really bad from that point on. So it was
0: tough. So, t- turning forward, I guess, well, I guess not, to, just to go back to your, your time in prison here, because um, like I talked about during the intro, you're a guy that has been, you know, very helpful at uh, using your, uh, this expertise, this legal expertise that you de- you've developed to help set other people free, to work for clemency for other people. So, before we get into talking about some of those individual cases so you just said yourself that, you know, as, as, a, as a young man, um, I guess to, to paraphrase, you know, you, you were maybe a little difficult to deal with. At, at what point did did your outlook change? And, uh, you know, you went into prison, you're facing this 40-year sentence. W- w- when did your mindset's, mindset start to shift?
1: Well, my mindset was always focused on, hey, look, no one's going to fight for my life harder than I am. So I always knew that I had to get to the law library. But my first prison that I went to was a uh, USP Big Sandy. It was a uh, it was a pretty dangerous prison, and I seen people. Um, I seen some people viciously assaulted there. I seen a person get murdered there, and it was around that time where I, it clicked in my head, and I said, "Look, I need to change my life. I need to make sure that I get out of here, because it was a maximum security prison, the worst prison in the United States, hands down, state prison or federal prison. It was a violent place, so I knew that." In order to get out of that prison, I had to get to a lower security prison. And I changed my mindset. I started going to school. I started uh, taking any kind of programs I could take. And I went. I was in the law library every single day. because I, And that kept me away from the unit, kept me away from the violence. And I just worked, man. I worked nonstop. I have a pretty good work ethic. And I knew that the only way I was going to get out of prison is if I got myself out. Mm-hmm. So I worked on the law. And, and I always you know, give this to God. I say it's by the grace of God that. He gave me a tool, man, to be able to interpret the law and to be able to write. I, I'm a pretty good writer and I've been, you know, I've been fortunate, but it's by the grace of God. And that's when my life changed. When I seen someone get killed in federal prison, it changed my life.
0: So you start spending time in the in the law library first, working on your own case, working for your own freedom. Um, what was the, the first case where you started to help someone else out?
1: Well, um, one of the first cases I did was, uh, I worked for a Cuban guy when we were in uh, U.S.P. Coleman down in Florida, and I did his 2255. and I ended up winning a uh, evidentiary hearing on his 2255. And he went back on his evidentiary hearing, and he ended up getting a lower. Uh, they ended up negotiating, and he copped out to 25 years when he started with 23. And that was in uh, that was the first case I won. I want to say that was in 2009 or 2010 at U.S.P. Coleman. And then after that, I just it, it was a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. You know, And I, I always tell people that I deserve to go to prison. There's no doubt about that. I deserve to go to prison, but I didn't deserve a 40 year sentence at 40 years old. And I see that in other guys. And what really motivated me was I was with a guy named Billy D. Williams. And he was a young man. He was about 22 years old and he had had two prior uh, convictions for petty drugs. And um, I started working on his case. He copped out he took a plea bargain and his lawyer didn't tell him actually what he was facing and he got life who would waive their rights for a life sentence at the age of 21 or 22 years old and my passion to help people in that position it just burned here was a young african american man who lived the life of poverty unfortunately his i believe his mother might have been using drugs and it was just a vicious cycle and i and I was, it was personal so i worked on his case i didn't win but he was granted clemency by Obama. President Obama granted him clemency, and he ended up getting out of prison, and he's doing well, and, and I'm thankful for that.
0: Hey, everybody. Taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out... Uh, my man, Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode, Felony Friday, episode 230, interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal, not just for uh, the message of Free and Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system all the proceeds from uh the free ross song hashtag free ross by crypto man you can find it on spotify and amazon amazon music 100 of the proceeds from the song hashtag free ross by crypto man go towards freeing ross ulbricht so please check it out these are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business of and family why. New play, but they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major. So do you have any any cases that you've worked on, um, you know, in the past ten years, however long you've been doing it, that really stick out to you, either that you're either particularly proud of or that were just very, very important to you personally? I got about three of them.
1: I, uh, when the Johnson decision came down from the Supreme Court, I had did a case for an Asian guy, Wang Jiafu, And I had argued that his conspiracy charge was not a violent crime. And if there wasn't a violent crime, then he couldn't be convicted of the two 924C charges. He pled guilty and had 30 years. I won that case. We got 18 years off and he was able to go home. Wow. And his mom wrote me a letter and it was in broken English. But she told me that, you know, I made her cry but it was a happy cry. That case has always stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a case right now that I've been working on for a long time. And this brother's dear to me. Uh, his name's Rodney Love. He, um, he was a 24 year old young man, ended up with a life plus 55 year sentence. He had two priors. He I think he had um, 13 Oxycontin pills, I think it was, and a $10 bag of crack. Well, that put him in a position where he was facing a mandatory life sentence. Oh so good. So he got life for the drugs and 55 years for the 924C counts. Five for the first, 25 for the second, and another 25, and they had to run wild. So what happened was President Obama granted him clemency. And when he granted him clemency, he reduced his sentence to 26 years and 10 months. But that sentence is based off of the two stacked 924Cs. He lived in the cell across from me. I just left him. And I've been working tirelessly on that case. He is, uh, I think he has the same prosecutor as Chris Young, the um, Kim Kardashian's advocating for Chris Young for clemency, and they're both sentenced in the same courtroom to life sentences. That case is dear to me. And I won one last week, the day after I got out, Ronnie Lauderdale, another African-American brother, Christian brother, loves the Lord. He came to me and he was like, uh, listen, man, I've had a whole bunch of people work on my case and I don't know if I'm ever going to get out, Chad, I think I'm going to die in prison. And, uh, that bothered me when he said that. So, uh, I took, I took on his case and by the grace of God, uh, he called me the other day. He was getting ready to, he was supposed to be getting on a plane to go home with his family. So he got released the day after me, but he started with a life sentence. He had three, four different lawyers, spent a lot of money and couldn't get out of prison. But today he's out of prison, man. And I'm happy about that. It's amazing. I'm real so, passionate about so, that. So case. he
0: got out the day after you got compassionate release. Yeah.
1: He got compassionate release too.
0: That's amazing. So so to turn back to your case, you're out of compassionate release now. Um, I assume you're still pushing for for clemency for yourself or what, where does that stand?
1: Yeah, I still, um, I'm hopeful that the president, uh, I guess the best way to say is I'm hopeful that President Trump will uh, find me worthy of his mercy because I don't want to have to go down this road with the appeal and I'm hopeful that we'll win, but there's always that. It's always in the back of my mind that hey, I could be going back to prison for another twenty years. And if I'm out here and I'm doing the right thing and I'm a productive member of society, I don't think I should go back to prison. Mm-hmm. I'm rehabilitated, man. I care about I care about my freedom. What the framers found so important—life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness—I'm telling you that that means something to me. I care about this country. I care about my freedom. I care. I, I have a newfound respect for the rule of law, and I mean that when I say that. And there's guys in prison. That I wouldn't help. If I thought they were going to get out and mess up, I wouldn't help them. They could have the best issue in the world. I wouldn't help them because I would always tell people if I get you out of prison and you come back, guess what it does? It ruins every opportunity for me and the men and women behind us that deserve to get out. So if I don't think you're going to go out there and be a good example, then no, that's it. I won't help you. So,
0: so how does compassionate release work? What, what, what does it mean? So, I mean, you haven't granted clemency, but you're. Do you, what kind of restrictions are do you have on you? On you? Well, I'm on, I'm on federal
1: parole, post-supervised release. So the same thing that applies to everyone that gets released. See, a lot of people think when you hear the word compassionate release that they're letting you out because you were sick. But that's not always the case. I mean, if there's extraordinary and compelling reasons and the judge makes that finding, then you can be released. And you had asked about the cases that were dear to me. After the first step came, first step back came out, I had realized that there was something in there that we could use. And I was working with a guy named Conrado Cantu from Texas. He was a sheriff. He was the sheriff down there in Texas. And he ended up with, uh, I think his sentence was 30 years. And I was explaining everything to him. And I said, look, if you want to do it, we'll do it. But I'm kind of practicing because I'm not sure, but I think I'm right. And what happened was I ended up filing his 3582 and we won. It was the first case to win after the First Step Act came out. Mm-hmm. So we won that. And then it just took off from there. I mean, Sean Hopwood, he wrote, um, I mean, he did a lot of work on this issue too. So he did a great job on it. And we're all thankful for him. He was out here. He had the resources and definitely thankful for him. But yeah, I won the first case, man. And I say that's, you know, just by the grace of God. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. Cause there's, there's been a lot. I mean, I, I it seems like you know, they come in, I don't know if they come in spurts, but it seems like every week there's there's a couple people getting out on, on compassionate release. Well, let me tell you something. You know, I was in there for 17 years. There's plenty of
1: people in there that deserve to get out. I mean, we're wasting tax dollars on over-incarceration on people that really deserve to get out. And I always use this as an example. We can look at Alice Johnson, right? Mm-hmm. She didn't get clemency under President Obama, but she got it under President Trump. And what did she do when she got out? She's an example. Yeah. She's an example that people deserve a second chance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, she's out doing the right thing. She, she would have been doing that had President Obama released her. She spent more time in prison than she didn't need to, to spend in there. Yeah, she would So have it doesn't had, only, it doesn't only affect time. us, but it also affects the taxpayer. We're wasting taxpayer dollars. There's this thing called the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. I don't think you should take a 24-year-old for a, really what it was is a nonviolent crime. And send him to prison for forty years. You know, we're we're a free country. We're better than that. You don't need to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, there, there's the the taxpayer hit, but there's also the opportunity cost. I mean, a lot of people like yourself, like Alice Johnson, you have skills and value you can add to society, which is restricted when when you're locked up. You can't you can't do as much as you could um, if you're out. So. It's not only that it's you you're holding back uh you know a valuable resource from from society and i mean it's 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 got to change I don't know when it will it seems that it seems like in this in society more and more people are understanding just how egregious the problem is I think for a very long time nobody knew that this problem even existed they didn't know of the thousands and thousands of people like yourself who were in prison locked up for on decades-long sentences for these nonviolent drug charges. But I feel like, thanks a lot to President Obama, you know, starting it with uh, granting, granting his clemency, the, the numbers that he did, but then ramping up even more so with uh, with President Trump. Um, I think things are heading in the right direction. What's, what, what are your thoughts on that? Where do you see the criminal justice movement, I don't know, five, ten years from now? This is
1: where I see it. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for President Obama, too. I mean, let's not make no mistake. I believe that he could have done a lot more, and I believe he should have done a lot more. I, you know, when he had both the House and the Senate, he could have done it. Um, As far as President Trump goes, let me tell you this. I love the guy, man. And I'm going to tell you why. Because had he not pushed Mitch McConnell to pass that first step back in them last days, I wouldn't be on this computer talking to you. I wouldn't be on on Zoom. And I want, you know, I think people should look at that. I mean, is there a lot more to be done? 100%. Does he have the power to do it? He does. And I think that Jared Kushner, man, you know, I'm thankful for him, too, because he pushed it. He pushed it. He, You know, he knows personally, you know, the effect of incarceration with his own father. So, yeah, I mean, we need to think about that. What did President Trump do? He passed the First Step Act. And had he not done so, I wouldn't have been able to get out. I wouldn't have been able to get the people out that I got out. And a lot of them brothers were african American. Mm-hmm. I want another case. I want to say in March, Reggie Owens. He had 35 years and he had armed bank robberies. But this is one of the best guys I ever met in my life. He was a Christian. He's been out now. He's, he's working. I think he's getting ready to get married. He had stacked 924Cs. He served over 20 years of his life in prison. Did he deserve to go to prison? 100%. But he, did he deserve to possibly die in there? No. I mean, once, once someone's rehabilitated, what's left? It becomes cruel and unusual. I mean, when the rehabilitation has been done, it's over. Mm -hmm. The only thing left is punishment and suffering. And then you look at the effects of the families, man. You affect families. Kids are growing up without fathers in single family homes. And I chalked that up to me going to prison. That was one of the, I didn't have a male role model in my life. I didn't have someone there to correct me. My mom worked two jobs to take care of me and my sister. And uh, she wasn't home. We took care of ourselves. So it takes away. Where do I see the? You said where do I see the criminal justice movement going? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you this. I refer back to Cory Booker. There was a Democratic debate, and he said, "Look, you know, we said these laws were wrong in the first step back." He said, "So what we need to do is, I'm challenging every one of you to come in and grant those thirteen thousand people clemency, because we said the law was wrong, but it's not retroactive." So I think you know statements like that and what's going on. I think the criminal justice reform movement. I think it's progressing, but we're going to lose people, man. People, people are going to actually die in prison and never get out. So it needs to be ramped up. We need to make this stuff retroactive. Mm-hmm. In 2010, we did it with the crack, right? We said, Hey, look, the crack laws are wrong. But then we waited eight years to say, okay, let's make that retroactive. If it's wrong, it's wrong for everybody. It should
0: be retroactive. That, that makes, that makes zero sense at all for the, for that not to be retroactive. No,
1: yeah. sense. I mean, especially when you're giving guys three, 400 years, there's a guy, Ian Owens, I mean, this guy's got 400 years in prison. I mean, and the guy's rehabilitated 100% rehabilitated for
0: selling. For selling, how much? Like, what, what was? No, the... I think he.
1: I think he had a. Uh, he's got some armed bank robberies. He does, mm-hmm. but
0: I mean, do people so, change it? So did Sean Hopwood, right? Was it yeah. his? Uh,
1: yeah. And look, let's hey, let's look at Matthew Charles, the first recipient of the first step Act. I mean, when you look at mm-hmm. when you look at the history there, and. The judge had spoke about it. Sean Hopwood wrote about it. I mean, it it was pretty bad. But what did he do? He went to prison and changed his character. And he got out after, he got out. Then they sent him back. That's what I'm afraid of. They sent him back, but then he got back out. And what is he doing? He changed his life, man. He's an upstanding citizen. He became the change that we seek to see in others without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, this guy really changed his life. But there's thousands and thousands of guys in there just like that. There's a thousand more Matthew Charleses There's a 1,000 Alice Johnsons. I mean, should there be punishment? You know we can't live in a lawless land. Mm -hmm. There has to be punishment. But when the rehabilitation's been done, why are we leaving people in prison? There were no more programs for me. I got a college degree. I did 110 programs. I facilitated alternative violence project seminars. I taught leadership classes under Cedric Dean at the SAVE Save organization. I mean, I've, I've done everything. There was nothing left. What was there left for me to do? Sit in a cell? Waste my time. It's you, ridiculous.
0: You, you've said twice now that you're afraid they're going to send you back. Or, or, or what, what's, what? What's that in regards to? You? You're talking about could they send you back w- without you even, you know, committing a crime? Or what? What are you getting at here?
1: Well, they got an appeal. They're appealing again. That same prosecutor. He filed an appeal, and he's arguing that the judge didn't have the power to release me. The federal sentencing judge didn't have the power. That the only person that had the power was the um, BOP director. He's wrong on the law. I believe he's wrong on the law. But that's what I'm worried about. I don't want to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. But there is that chance that I'm going back for another 20 years.
0: Well, unbelievable. <clears throat> well, so to, uh, one thing I did want to ask you, um, because you kind of talk casually about all these people you've helped. And, I mean, you, you know the details of their the trial, the charges, everything inside and out. I'm curious, just like taking just an example, and I'm sure it varies, you know, person to person, uh, you know, trial to trial uh, case to case, I should say. But how much time would you typically have to put in, you know, to get to really understand the, the ins and outs to be able to help someone to either get clemency or to get compassionate release?
1: Well, um, almost every single person that I help get out of prison, they're usually my friend first. Some guys will come in the law library and they'll start asking me, and I'll say, oh, I'm busy, but it's usually the guys that keep coming back. And we end up becoming friends. Like I'm great friends with Rodney Love. Ronnie Lauderdale. We were friends before I ever helped. Mm -hmm. And uh, he thought his life was over with. So when he came to talk to me, he was just kind of like, hey, man, you know, he never really asked me. He waited months and months. He's like, you think you could ever help me? I said, I don't know, Ronnie. Let me look at your case. And I read it. It took me a couple weeks. I went over everything. I was like, I don't know, man, but we're going to give it a shot. And I'm glad that we did. So typically, I put time in on these cases, man. I'm in the law library. From seven in the morning until sometimes eight at night, I'd be in there. And I, you know, and it's hard to get documents. I read every piece of paper in the case, man. Because there might be something, there might be one line that might save someone's life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying nothing bad about other jailhouse lawyers, quote unquote, but uh some guys don't do that, but I do because if we want to get you out of prison, there might be that one line that someone misses, and that might be the line that gets you out. It might be in your jury instruction. It might be an ineffective assistance of counsel issue. There might be a fourth amendment violation. So I read everything. So it takes time, a lot of time.
0: Do you have anything, any just like what you talked about there? Was something jumping out to you reading through the uh, the documents? Do you have anything that jumps out in your mind? Something you found that you're especially proud of, or, or something that you know is just a an, an interesting uh, story
1: out of out of a case? Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I, I'd have to go. I mean, it goes back to the Colorado Can Two case. I would say because I wasn't sure I was right. I thought I was. And I told him, I actually told him, hey, you want to practice? I was going to practice on his case. And he's like, yeah, let's let's give it a try. And I had told him, I said, look, man, I don't know, man. I don't think it's going to work. I had told him two or three times. I said, I'm not sure it's going to work. You, sh- you sure you want to do it? And, he, and then we typed it up and we got it all done. And he's like, yeah, let's file it. I said, I just don't want to let you down. Well, he filed it. And the day before he got out of prison, we were actually walking around in the yard. And we could see the outside. And they had just had a, a, the state fair there when I was in Kentucky. And that bothered me to see the lights and everything. But anyway, um, I, he said, you think I'm going to get out? I said, man, I do. I think you're going to get out. And the next day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they told him, hey, pack your stuff. You're leaving. And th- that that just – because I didn't know if I was right. And I and I never told anyone in my life that we're going to practice on your case. And I actually was practicing, and I practiced on his case. That's amazing and, and story. We, and we won, man. We won. And, I, and I'm I'm happy for him.
0: That's amazing. Um, so now that you're out, uh, what are your plans? You know, what, what do you, I know, I know that you're, you're more cases to work on, things like that. But, you know, look, looking forward, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, what do, what do you see yourself doing? What do you see in your future? Well,
1: for my future, I see, uh, obviously, man, I just want to be happy, right? I want to, I want to do things that make me happy. And getting people out of prison makes me happy. When you see, when you watch that video, of Alice Johnson running across that street to her family, you've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to see thousands more people doing that. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And I work uh, directly right now. I'm working with Amy Poe the Can Do Clemency Organization. Right. I mean, phenomenal woman, man. If it wasn't for her and, and Lisa Jacoby and Freedom Fighters, I, I mean, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in, man.
0: Amy, was, Amy was just on with uh, with Rufus Rochelle. Oh, was she?
1: Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'll go back and check it out. Hey, that lady's phenomenal. But hey, Lisa Jacoby too. Uh, she 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 worked at the Federal Defenders Office for 22 years in my city. She's got a company, Freedom. I'm not trying to plug, but I'm just telling you who the lady is. Oh, yeah, go. yeah, plug away. Okay. Freedom Fighters. Hey, this lady's phenomenal, man. Did everything for me, everything. And if it wasn't, she took my file down. She went to the, you know, she went to the courthouse, went to the judge. She tried to get down there, speak to Congress members in D.C. I mean, she worked tirelessly, man. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for her and Amy. So this is what I'm going to be doing. And I'm also going to put a uh, prison service. I want to be the biggest prison service provider in the United States, man. you know, at a reasonable fee for people, because I know what it's like to be in there. So that's what I plan on doing. Photos. It makes it easier for family members to be able to just send a photo through my company that I'm going to start. And we're the ones that send them out. It's just a lot of stuff that prisoners want, ordering books. You know, some people don't have family members, but they earn a little money. They want to order books from Amazon. They have no way to do that stuff. So I kind of want to do that.
0: All right, just a couple more questions for you, Chad. You talked about the beginning of June, the first time you think you're getting out of capacity release, and they make the phone call and you get pulled back. Um, as you said, I mean, I can't even, can't even imagine going through something like that. When you did finally get out, can you just walk us through? You know what? What emotions were you experiencing? You know what was the first thing you you wanted to do? Um, what, what were you excited about when you had you know your your freedom back?
1: Well, when I walked out, I, I walked really really fast, and I have a video clip of it. I don't know. I can send it to you if you want. it, True. But I was walking really fast, and <clears throat> for years I had always seen these stuffed crust meat lovers pizzas on TV, and I was like, man, I really want to have one of those. So that's one of the first things I did. Um. And then I knew that I had to get to work, man, because it's not just about Chad Marks. It's not just the Chad Marks story. It's all the men and women that I left behind that deserve to get out of prison. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So as soon as I came home, I started working, man, the next day. I had some other stuff that I had pending with other guys in courts. I pulled their stuff up on Pacer. I made some um, addendums and sent some of that stuff to them already. So that's my focus, man. I love doing this stuff. I've been doing it for Mm -hmm. 17 years. I'm not going to walk out of prison and be a construction worker. That's not going to work. So this is what I do, man. And I love doing it.
0: Yeah. Well, you're obviously, uh, obviously gifted in in doing it. So that's, I mean, when you can use your gifts to help people, that's doesn't get any better than that. Does it? Well, I appreciate it, man. So, uh, just last thing, if you could just let people know if, uh, I know you're on social media, give your social media so people to follow you and, uh, you know, follow your work and help you out in any way they can.
1: Well, uh, I mean, like I said, it's not just about me, but there's guys that I left behind that I'd like to say Jimmy Romans was sentenced to life in prison for marijuana, working on getting him out. Um, if you can follow him on my Facebook page or I don't know how all this stuff works. So I apologize. I just know I got a Facebook page. Um, I don't know how Actually, work hey,
0: one, one question on that, because you do a Facebook page. So how, cause, and it was updated a lot because I, I would read your Facebook page. How, how did that work? Who was updating your Facebook page when you were? When you were in?
1: That was Lisa Jacoby Okay. at Freedom Fighters. She'd do everything. She's still doing it for me. Um. So, yeah, I want to highlight these guys, man. Jimmy Romans, sentenced to life for marijuana. Um. Christopher Hunter, he's like a brother to me and a best friend. 35 years for a cocaine charge. Uh, Rodney Love, like I spoke about. African-American brother that deserves to get out of prison, man. I love this guy, man. I want to see him get out. <clears throat> Brad Bart. You know, so people can kind of follow... If you see them on my page, there's a petition out. I'm asking people to sign it. But most importantly, let's hold, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they're getting ready to go at it, but let's hold them accountable. Let's not forget about that uh, crime bill. Let's let's demand some answers because a lot of times they're like, well, we're going to fix the marijuana for, you know, these are misdemeanor crimes anyway that they're talking about fixing. Let's Mm -hmm. do some real fixes. We said that this stuff was wrong. Let's make it retroactive. Joe Biden wants their vote. OK, well, promise us that you're going to do this because we're never going to forget what you did in the 1994 crime bill. Let's fix that. President Trump. I'm a guy from being in prison. Actions speak louder than words. And for me. I mean, President Trump's spoken. There's more to be spoke, but he's spoken, man. And, and, and let's 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 push it. Let's push it. Let's work together. You know, together we'll conquer as one will fail. I mean, these, these are elected officials. They work for us let's get some work done. And, you know, that I'll end it with that, man. But I appreciate you and appreciate everything that you do.
0: Well, thank you, Chad. And uh, 100% agree with you on uh, holding Joe Biden and Donald Trump accountable right now. I mean, now's an opportunity to use uh, this election season to put pressure on both of them. To uh, Joe Biden can make promises, and by him making promises to, to grant clemency, to change laws, he can put the pressure on Trump to do it now. So um, 100% agree. And, uh, and th- thank you, Chad, for coming on the show. And thank you for, for everything that you you have done and, and will continue to do. Um, you know, it's uh, like I said, it, it's a gift that you have. And to be able to use it, that's, that's a great thing. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to today's show. Another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing, subscribing, For the great price of $0 per month, you get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash lions of liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lines of Liberty on Instagram and Twitter. We are at lines of Liberty and the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to, to talk about politics, Liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the lines of Liberty forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing lines of Liberty forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search comes up say you want to join it answer a question bam you're in and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you so check that out that's all i have for today this is john odermatt signing off always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning